how do you maintain that culture? Well, it's empowerment. You know, all the employees, people who you're surrounded with, let them shine, not even let them enable them to have ideas, enable them to share and have cross team communication and not this fragmented, you know, communication bubble where it's like the C-suite has to report to me and they don't have this collaboration with amongst them. It's, you know, what I like to look at is it's all the web and to build a culture that's going to be sustainable. I'm a servant of that web. And if I can just enable everybody to be successful in what they're skilled at, you know, that's my biggest focus. Welcome to the Every Breath Counts podcast. I'm Ryan Sheckle, health enthusiast, amateur ultra runner, and award-winning business consultant. And each week, I interview the most accomplished people in the world, from professional and Olympic athletes to CEOs, best-selling authors, and even the occasional magician to demystify what it takes to achieve success at the highest level. Take what you can from these stories to optimize your mind, your body, and your career so you can make every breath count. Thank you for investing the time in the show and yourself. Now let's get started. William Rosenberg said, show me a person who never made mistakes and I'll show you a person who never did anything. And Charles Schwab said, the man who does not work for the love of work, but only for money is likely to neither make money nor find much fun in life. Did you know that CBD oil is extracted by spinning the hemp plant with chemicals? I sat down and talked to Brandon Barr, founder and CEO of Simple Solvents, a company that provides high quality ethanol for hemp extraction. Brandon helped me understand that medical grade oil of any sort is only as clean as the chemicals it's actually being extracted with. And Brandon and I had a great conversation about his journey as an entrepreneur how his company pivoted for the right reasons during COVID, and his philosophy on starting, growing, and scaling a business. This episode is perfect for anyone that has a business idea, but is scared to execute on it because of their fear of the unknown. And if this is your first time here, welcome and thank you for tuning in. Be sure to click the subscribe button to stay up to date with all the latest episodes. If you found this episode inspiring, educational, or entertaining, It'd be awesome if you would leave a rating wherever you listen. You can also comment with one thing you loved about this episode as a review. And the best way to support the podcast is to share it with others that might find it interesting and exciting. Without further ado, here is founder and CEO of Simple Solvents, Brandon Barr. Brandon Barr, thank you so much for joining the podcast. Yeah, oh, thanks for having me. I'm excited. Absolutely. Absolutely. So you are the co-founder. You are the CEO of Simple Solvents. And you started this company that provides ethanol and other solvents for, for hemp um, to extract all the good stuff from the hemp um, as a business model. And you started it a couple of years ago, kind of amidst the the COVID pandemic. So share with me the story about how you guys got started and where you really found like a need in the market for solvents. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So my story in the hemp world started in between 2015, 2016. And my focus was actually as a digital marketer, launching a direct to consumer brand. And our focus was to make an impact on mental health awareness by creating products that provide, um, you know, stress relief and other and other things that would aid, you know, in mental health, and just starting a conversation around that. Well, by building that brand up, we had to create products, we had to, um, you know, establish a supply chain. And through that, we just noticed a big lapse in conversations that were happening around quality. And a lot of the things that some of the providers and the extractors were, you know, talking about regarding quality there, there just wasn't much conversation around the chemicals being used and pretty much every edible, every vaporizer cartridge, every um, lotion that you may see with either cannabis, medical marijuana or, or hemp uses some kind of chemical to get that oil out. And it was kind of just taken for granted. So, you know, through the process of building that brand and having such a extreme focus on quality, I mean, we're, we're talking about developing 
stuff that aids in, you know, all sorts of health benefits. So at, at the end of it, you know, everything that goes in there should be traceable. It should be quality and it should be safe. So, no, yeah. yeah, that makes that, a lot of sense. It's interesting. I actually, I was, I was talking to someone, uh, I, I believe it's one of my last podcasts. Um, his name is Chris Mandarino, and he started a supplement company, a plant-based supplement company. And what he talked about with his supplements was, you know, it, it was really important to understand what is in the supplements, but it was also really important to understand like where it's coming from. And it sounds like that's what you're saying with your simple solvents is, if you're extracting, if, if you're using chemicals in a way to extract something that's supposed to be healthy, it's supposed to be medicine grade, yep. then you want to not only know like what specifically it is you're taking, but but how it's being extracted, what yep. is being used in that process. So kind of explain that a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. So there are a handful of different extraction methods and you know they all lead to a different outcome depending on what kind of product you want to end up with, right? So um, you know, there are some cool, cool innovations coming out where people can use water, they can use just simply pressure and heat, but unfortunately those, they're not scalable. Mm. So what you see is, you know, to get that large scale manufacturing, you really need, um, chemicals to do it. Right. So kind of the conversation that we love to have is, okay, ethanol extraction, for example, is, is one of the most popular, especially in the, in the hemp world and the CBD world. and the question that that not only consumers should be asking, but also an extractor who's out in the world looking to procure this ethanol and other chemicals used in that process. Well, what what grade is it? You know, it's it's very standard for somebody to look for a lab test on the finished oil and the finished product, the finished CBD product and the finished, you know, cannabis product. But why are we not looking at the lab test of the ethanol that's being used? Mm. And And, you know, what we see is, unfortunately, there's no standard. There's no, um, you know, there's, there's no, you know, agency that said, okay, this is, these are the qualities that you need to hit in your solvents when you're using it to extract for cannabis or hemp. And, you know, so what we look at is, okay, what is the highest quality and how can we develop that, that standard so we can ensure that people are consuming safe products and, you know, it's really exciting for me because you look at the direct to consumer model where I originally started in the hemp space and I can make a great impact on mental health and creating, you know, safe products that way. But when you look back at something that can impact the entire industry, well, everybody's using chemicals. And if we can be that, that, you know, steady rock that says, Hey, this is the quality you should be using. This is, this is what, this is the education that goes hand in hand with that. So not only are you buying a safe and high purity um, extraction solvent, but you also know how to use it. You also know how to dispose of it. You know how to store it. So, you know, that safety doesn't just start at, you know, the consumers and consuming those edibles or vaporizer cartridges, but it also has to do with the safety of the employees in the facility because, you know, we've seen, we've seen contaminated um, butane, for example, that leads to explosions inside of a lab. So, you know, there's a handful of things that can go wrong. And that that's not just talking about the finished outcome of the product. It's, it's the safety of your, your staff. It's the safety of, you know, even your neighbors, uh, the people who are, who are next door to you um, when you're extracting with some of these really volatile chemicals. But really the big thing is, again, this is supposed to be a, a healthy product. And if we don't know what solvents are being used to get to that end product, you know, there's a, there's a, a level of education that we're missing there. And this, know, go is, ahead. this is really interesting to me because in a way it's kind of similar to like plants or, or vegetables, right? Because, um, and, and I know that hemp obviously is a plant and is a vegetable in a lot of ways, but like I go back to thinking about maybe the responsibility of, of farmers and the responsibility of, uh, organic, like that organic label on vegetables, right? It's not necessarily just that it's the vegetable itself. Like, yes, everybody knows that lettuce is healthy for you. Right. But what are you doing to the environment? What are you doing to the end product? What are you doing? How are you affecting the health when you are spraying pesticides right. on, on chemicals like, like lettuce, right? Or if you are uh, ruining the, the dirt and you're not maybe moving your vegetables around and, and 
being aware and cognizant of how you're plotting out your vegetables, um, how you're taking them out of the ground, how you're processing them. And it sounds very similar. So it almost seems to me as though there's some sort of environmental or ethical uh, responsibility for yeah. people that are harvesting hemp. I mean, what would yeah. you say to that? Yeah, I think I think the a big thing that I would like to point out is the fragmentation of the supply chain, right? So the the farmers usually aren't the ones that are making the decision as to what chemicals are used. So the farmers, you know, they they will grow the hemp, they will grow the cannabis, but once it's grown, if it doesn't go into the smokable flower side of the business, if it's going into extraction, generally that's a whole third party who takes that and does the extraction and then gets that out onto the market. So it's kind of fragmented. So the responsibility is, yes, there is a high level of responsibility for quality of the farmer, because here's the tricky thing about hemp and cannabis. It pulls out unwanted stuff from the soil that can definitely make it into your extracts. For example, mm -hmm. it can pull, you know, metals from the soil. It can, it can clean up radiation from the soil. Well, those are all super positive things, but if that ends up into a consumable product, that could, that could cause some problems, right? So there's a level of responsibility for the farmer, but I think for this conversation, the, the responsibility lies on the extractor and the processor. And that, that's kind of a standalone business model where they're, a, you know, usually pretty large facilities. They've got, you know, the capacity to take a whole bunch of, of cannabis or hemp and, you know, get the oils out of it for use. That's their sole business. That's all they focus on. So yeah. So let's talk about this a little bit. So yeah. when you're talking about hemp, when you're talking about cannabis, yeah. Um, specifically, which plants are we talking about? Yeah. So there it's, that's actually a funny conversation because they're really the same plant. Okay. So what I, what I would like to, to, you know, how I do the comparison is cannabis sativa L is the scientific plant name. Okay. Whether that's medical marijuana, cannabis, hemp, it doesn't matter. It's the same uh, general plant, right? And then what you would, the great kind of comparison is, all right, you've got roses and some are pink and some are red. Well, mm -hmm. it's the same, it's the same concept here. They're, they're the same plant. They're just a different variation. And what that's going to do is lead to a higher content of either CBD or a higher content of THC. Um, and there's, you know, there's a couple of other variations, but not to overcomplicate it. That's, they're essentially the same thing. Um, so then when you're taking this plant, the sativa, the sativa plant, you are, you said there's a couple different ways that you could process this, right? So if it's a smokable flower, now what they're yep. doing is they're just taking the flower, they're taking the plant and what is it? The bud or, or they're, they're creating something to smoke and, and that there's nothing that you do after the fact to that. Yeah, you Correct. just you just you just dry it and you know make sure it's the right humidity to to be able to smoke and that's you know that's exactly how you said it. It's just a little bud on on the plant. You pick it off, you let it dry, and it's ready to either extract or or smoke. Or, so then, or this other side industry, right? This this yep. medical, the uh, specifically medical industry that focuses on the edibles, on the uh, the what is it, the tetrin, or is it is that what it's called, the little oil that you put on your tongue, the tincture, 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 yep, the tincture, um, the the vape, all of this. This is something where you're not just taking a bud. It's not like you're grounding up a plant. You're actually extracting the oils from the plant and then you're using it for the medication. So it, it's interesting for people to think about this because it's not like you're just taking a plant out of the ground. You are actually doing a process to this plant to extract everything. And I think that's where we're getting it. And that's really where you saw this need in the market um, for, for responsible, for ethical extraction methods. So can you actually take me through like how the oils or, or how the sativa is actually extracted with the with the process that you guys supply for yeah so to, the simplest way to explain it would be um oils love alcohol you know that's kind of the simplest way mm. to look at it especially for the ethanol side right so you can essentially get the flower of the plant you can you know grind it up so it's fine and just imagine like a washing machine where it spins 
super fast, right? So you put your, your flour, your buds in there. You, you add the alcohol, which is ethanol. Okay. And as it spins, it, that alcohol is taking the oils off the plant. Mm. And you're leaving the plant matter on the inside. And then there's, you know, a screen that allows the liquid, the oils, and, you know, that's kind of dissolved in that alcohol to be removed from the plant. And there's, you know, there's other ways to do it. But, you know, I think for this conversation, that's the easiest way to explain it. And then outside of that, you can use other solvents to get kind of the same uh, reaction there to just be, you're essentially binding to the oil from the plant, pulling it from the plant, and then purifying it from there. Mm. Yeah, that's interesting. It's uh, it's crazy just to think about the process that it takes to get some of the medications. Is is this pretty consistent with? Um, is this something that isn't specific to hemp or sativa, but any like plant based medicine? Is this like a yeah, very would, similar extraction process? I would compare it. It's it's very similar to say essential oil extraction. Oh, okay. Yeah, so that would probably be the most direct comparison that people would be familiar with. You know, you're using an alcohol or a solvent to bind to oils from the plant. And in essential oils, that's obviously something that smells good and has some other therapeutic benefits, but it's essentially the same thing. Yeah. And then um, I'm trying to think, I mean, you can also do the same type of extraction for uh, pectin, for example, which is, you know, a, a health supplement. It's often found in gummies to use as like a gelatin agent. Yeah. Yeah. And it, that comes from uh, citrus peels, like orange peels and lemon peels. And you can do the exact same process. You put in a centrifuge or, you know, something similar to a washing machine, put the alcohol in, spin it. And then what you want uh, is separated from the plant and the plant matter stays in the middle and all the good stuff comes to the outside. How, how did you realize that this was the business you wanted to be in? Because, I mean, you're a young guy and, and it's got to take some courage in a lot of ways uh, to have like this entrepreneurial journey. And uh, it's not, it's not something that I think is, you know, a standard entrepreneurial company. It's not like you go online and you're like, oh, companies I can start. How about right. a solvent for yeah, right. hemp extraction company? I mean, well, what was going through your head when you decided to go all in on, on a solvent company? Yeah. I, so honestly, it's, it's a combination of a handful of things. So I was already in the hemp world um, with my direct to consumer brand. I was experiencing all of these problems. I was, I was, you know, I I'm sent samples of, of extracts and oils that would, I would never approve of being in a finished product, you know? So I'm, I'm starting to ask all these questions about quality and, you know, a lot of the vendors don't have answers for me. And it, it was very frustrating because the, the industry is so new. Well, I found myself as, you know, someone who has a direct-to-consumer brand. I'm trying to make an impact on the market. Well, where else can I be of value? Well, I started to, you know, broker a little bit. I, I wanted to help farmers. I wanted to help mm -hmm. the people who, who need help, right? They're not salespeople. And I have, you know, kind of that mentality of just connecting the dots, right? Well, right before COVID, I was brokering, you know, a handful of things, helping people out. Well, ethanol was just starting to become something that people were asking me for more and more. And it was honestly just really crazy timing because as soon as, you know, everything pretty much shut down, we're sitting here and we're like, okay, well, we have a direct to consumer brand. Our entire retail presence shut down. Our e-commerce presence is, is impacted heavily we can't manufacture anymore because we don't have emergency orders to do so. So, I mean, our hemp company basically shut down overnight. Jeez. And through that, it's like, okay, you can cave, you can, you know, you can go and find something or you can work with the card you're dealt and figure out how to proceed. Well, that timing was crazy because all that, that entire supply chain that I had developed to, you know, build that direct to consumer brand called Soothe. Well, they were all shut down. They weren't allowed to pr proceed with manufacturing anymore. So then what, what did they do? Well, they're like, well, I have all the licenses to manufacture hand sanitizer. So they were able, you know, a handful of these hemp people were, were able to go and get approval from the state to open to manufacture hand sanitizer. Well, wow. the number one ingredient in there is ethanol. So those same people who I was already working with, they said, hey, Brandon, hey, Brandon, we need ethanol. We can keep our lights on, help us get some product, right? 
Um, you know, and that's where, that's where, um, Danny, Katie, and I ended up meeting our other co-founders, um, Chris and Sean and, and Tracy. Well, we did a whole bunch of business in the sanitizer ethanol world and they were our supply chain actually through that. And, you know, it, it was very successful. It was a very chaotic nine, 10, 11 months. And then there was a handful of terrible product that make it, made it onto the market. People stopped <laughs> buying sanitizer. Um, that whole market imploded. I mean, it, it, you know, overnight just crashed. So, so yeah, what, what happened with that? Cause, cause you're right about that. Everything I saw from as soon as the pandemic started was like, we have to, it was like distilleries. I, I know distilleries in my city were, were yeah. shutting down making whiskey, which is a much more necessary uh, product in a pandemic <laughs> than hand sanitizer. But I mean, they were shutting down their whiskey production to make, to make hand sanitizer. And all of a sudden it, you didn't hear anything about it. The, st- the, sh- the shelves at first were empty. You couldn't yeah. find it. Then they were stocked. And now there's just a surplus everywhere yep. of hand sanitizer. Yeah. What, what was going on there? Uh, well, what was going on was greed, to be honest. there You have a handful of very large-scale manufacturers who have a lot of money. They have large credit lines. And then they go out and they've got contracts with someone like a Home Depot or or you know whoever, a large-scale distributor yeah. who turns around and they say, hey, I need 2 million units of sanitizer. Well, then they, they turn around and they go and make 10 million units thinking that they're going to get all these reorders. Well, guess what? The ethanol that they bought smells like eggs. And, <laughs> and, and now you've got 10 million units of sanitizer sitting there that nobody wants to open or use. You know, So you have this crazy surplus of terrible quality product. Um, and then the, the solid providers that everybody knew like Purell, I mean, they were sold out for like two years. Yeah. So it, it was it was just – a, a handful of, you know, some people really were trying to help. Um, but the, the surplus, I think it really just led to greed and, and overproduction and then blindly buying poor quality ethanol. And then it made it into the product and it smelled and all the consumers had a terrible experience with it. And, and then everybody was like, you know what? I don't think I need sanitizer anymore. Yeah. Well, I think the last thing that you want your uh, hands to smell like is probably yeah. whiskey. Right. Like if it's a whiskey, so I don't know if that's what it ended up being anyway. But it's interesting to me, though, that there's companies that got greedy and decided to uh, go all in on this production of hand sanitizer amidst a pandemic while you pivoted in a different way. Right. So other companies maybe pivoted chasing money. However, it sounds like you pivoted chasing a market need in terms of an identified problem that required a solution that that provided benefit to the end user. Oh yeah. Um, I mean, tell me about just that mindset and and this pivot in a pandemic that allowed you to start a company kind of around a need versus around uh, the solution that maybe you were looking for in terms of just financial gain. Yeah, I, I think it all comes back to just my mentality of being a problem solver. I mean, in, in any scenario, if you can just stay agile and stay quick and identify opportunities, that that's probably half the battle in itself. Um, and I mean, honestly, a lot of it was timing. You know, my mentality on supply chain and, and just manufacturing in general is, you don't ever want to chase business. You want to catch the business. Well, we were lucky enough to be the provider of the ethanol and, and we didn't have to chase anybody down to get the product out there. I mean, they they needed it and we were positioned to supply that need and we had to be scrappy. I mean, don't get me wrong. There was, you know, you're, you're talking 16 hour days for a year straight. You know, it, it was crazy. But I think the bigger takeaway is, yeah, okay, you can make, you can make, opportunity out of, you know, what you're dealt, right? But how do you turn that into something that's actually sustainable in the long run? Anybody, anybody can look at an opportunity in a bubble and monetize, right? But how do you turn that into something that has a has longevity? And for us, it's, you know, okay, we, we had a lot of success selling ethanol into the sanitizer world. But what do we really know best? Well, that's hemp and cannabis. That's where we've been. So it, 
for us, it was a relatively clear decision. It's okay. We have the supply chain. We have, we're moving volume of these chemicals and let's go back back to what we know. You know, we've, we've got the network, we've got the trust. Um, we've already got a reputation in the space because of our, our diehard and, um, you know, we don't, we don't sacrifice quality and people know that about us. So when we came into this niche and we're, we come from the chemical standpoint, well, it, it was just organic of a transition for us. You know, it, it was one day you're, you know, the sanitizer world is going crazy. The next day there's zero sales. So you can either put that down and go back to what you were doing before, or, or you can identify additional opportunity and see if you can pivot. And that, and that's what we did. And luckily we just had an, an awesome all-star team that was able to just quarterback this thing and get it, get it to where it's at now. In terms of sustainability, it sounds like you could, you could have chased this, this, uh, this hand sanitizer, ethanol, like gravy train, right? Because there was a lot of money and it, because there was a lot of production with it, but you made the pivot back to cannabis to hemp because of what you knew. Um, I would imagine a lot of these extractors could use, uh, like really cheap, um, ethanol. And it sounds like that's not what you're providing. Am I right about that? Yeah, we're not, I mean, the ethanol that we provide is amongst the cleanest purity you can find on the market. You know, it's, it's USP grade, which is us pharmacopoeia. Uh, so we adhere by their standards for, for purity. Um, you know, so we we're often asked to provide lower quality solvents and we just, we just won't do it. You know, we, that's not what we believe in. Yeah. And I think that's kind of where I was getting to with this question was just, you have options to do lower, high quality, middle quality yep. solvents. What makes you believe that a more expensive, higher quality product? And I'm not even going to say solvent, right? Because you're a CEO of a company, so I'm just curious, macro picture. Why, why use the high quality, high cost? solvent versus maybe a more, maybe a more affordable and even more profitable option. Yeah. I think for me, it's, I go back to my digital marketing roots and I'm looking at these KPIs that are extremely valuable. So the number one thing is what is the cost to retain a customer? Mm. And if you keep that cost low, you're going to have a, a, a great, a great success because the cost to attain a customer should be cheaper than the cost to acquire a new customer. How do you keep it low? By providing the highest quality service and the highest quality product Mm. and being over communicative on everything. We don't say an issue pops up, say a a delivery is going to be a day late getting on the road. Well, we're not going to, we will tell that client, Hey, your order is going to be a day late. We don't let them find out and chase us and ask us for answers. So it just that it's the whole mentality from the top down. You have to have a quality product. You have to have quality service and you have to educate and hold hands along the way because this isn't easy stuff. People can get hurt with these products, you know? So it's not just being there to say, Hey, I'm going to sell you chemicals. It's, Hey, I'm not only going to sell you chemicals. It's going to be the highest quality. I'll answer every time you call. And then on top of that, we'll teach you how to be safe with it and we'll teach you how to store it properly and we'll make sure that it gets gets to you safely. So it's just a handful of all of that. I love this because I think this is universal throughout a lot of industries. I think that if someone is providing the cheapest product on the market, what they're providing, that it's really the only situation um, where quality is is matters in terms of you understand when you're buying the cheapest, you're buying the the lowest quality um, available. Now, what can you do to increase the the cost of the good or service that you're selling? Well, you can increase the quality of the product, but the biggest increase that you could provide as a company, I feel like, is the education, is yep. the communication, is the service. All of those, this this big picture, this partnership, that's what that cost gets you. And and it sounds like you have built your company around this. That you're you're like a you're like an all in provider and not just a product when you're selling this to somebody. Yeah, absolutely. And and 
you know, we like to also think that our clients, you know, they're not just a customer. We're selling with them, not to them. And that difference, that difference is key because that means that everything that I can do to help them progress their business, willing to do, we're selling with them. The more successful they are, the more successful we are. If you have the mentality that you're just simply selling to customers, that repeat customer rate is going to be low and you know your cost to acquire is going to be higher because you don't have the word of mouth and i mean it just it impacts everything so it's just a full circle you know quality everything we we're not willing to make a sacrifice on any quality yeah what um what would it take you uh with simple solvents to to double your business this year like if you could identify maybe I don't even want to say like one, two or three things, but what exactly could you do this year to double your business? Yeah, I think honestly, there's a couple, there's a handful of things and the, the, the implications most likely will be more than double, but you also have to realize we're pretty new. So our, you know, our acceleration right now is already through the roof, but honestly, where, what, what we're focusing on is on the messaging side making sure that we're controlling the narrative on solvents and solvent quality, because there's a lot of conversation going around about unsafe products. So we want to lead the conversation of, Hey, this is how you fix that problem. Mm. You know? So, so there's that aspect of just making sure that we're a thought leader and we're doing that by podcast placements. We're doing that by, um, you know, going into a handful of different expos and, and, we have an extensive expo schedule for the rest of this year and every single one of them we're speaking and we're providing this education and we're, and we're teaching people not only about the supply chain of chemicals, but also how do you use them? What are they used for? What are the costs associated with it? How do you, how do you maintain a safe work environment uh, when you're using all of this stuff? So just leading with that education and that conversation is big, but honestly, the number one driver for us is regionalization all of the chemicals that are used in this space are located within a very specific area. Ethanol is manufactured where there's corn. Mm -hmm. So you're not going to have a handful of ethanol plants outside of the corn belt. So that requires a handful of transportation and moving that product to places like let's say Arizona that they're not going to have corn and they're not going to have ethanol like right on site. You have to ship it there. So um, and then all the, the, you know, majority of the other hydrocarbons like the heptane and the pentane and some of the other, these other ones, they're mainly manufactured in the Texas area, Texas, Louisiana area. And again, you have to move the product all over. So for us, opening up new markets based on data is our biggest thing to unlocking additional revenue. So what I mean by that is, you know, we have a huge focus on SEO, which means organic search traffic is going <clears> to be our number one indicator. Okay. So where okay. is that search traffic coming from? Well, if I can overlap where that organic search traffic is coming from with ads on top of a physical location where we have two or three expos hitting there for the rest of the year, that is the number one driver for increasing our business and, and doubling, tripling, maybe even quadrupling our revenue is simply by getting warehouses, getting trucking assets, and putting those chemicals in a warehouse in that local market so people don't have to wait a week, two weeks to get their product. It's there. It's in a warehouse. You know, that's, yeah. that's probably the biggest pain point for a lot of these people because, and, I, and I'll go back to it, and this is part of, part of the education, is supply chain is not easy. And a lot of these people aren't supply chain people. So what we find all the time is, hey, you know, we get a call, hey, we're out of ethanol. Can you give us, can you get us ethanol tomorrow? No, we can't because the plant is in the middle of Nebraska and you're located, you know, 2000 miles away. So, you know, we find that often of just, you know, it's tough to manage a supply chain, right? So there's a lot of uh, frantic orders. There's a lot of, um, you know, not a whole lot of preparation on orders. So we, we try to help with that on our backend in our software. We, we have a little bit of predictability where it's like, Hey, we kind of know how much you're using. We know your equipment. We know when you should be ordering. And we'll reach mm. out before that to make sure that these guys are, you know, thinking about that, right? So we, we just take it to the next level on all of that. But having a local warehouse is huge because they can, 
not only come and just pick it up if they have the ability to, or we can do a, a same day local delivery. So, so do you have local warehouses? You, you like, do you have physical warehouses that are, that are housing, um, ethanol ready to distribute? Yeah. So, so right now a majority of our product is at the ethanol plant, which is in Sutherland, Nebraska. The, the plant is Midwest renewable energy and they're a phenomenal, phenomenal partner. And, and the geography of the plant is also huge, super huge for us because we're one of the furthest West ethanol plants that's manufacturing the USP grade product. So geographically we're pretty, we're pretty well set for larger orders, right? So if you're taking a full truckload or a tanker that's 6,500 gallons or a rail car that goes on the rail, um, you know, that's easy coming from the plant and we, our geography is great, but a majority of our customers are much, much smaller volume. So those warehouses are absolutely crucial. And right now we just, um, are about to open our first one and it's in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and we should be live. My guess is within the next two weeks. That's awesome. So is that, are you doing that so that you have just faster accessibility to the West coast then is, is most of the hemp being extracted on the West coast or where is it? Yeah, no. So most of the hemp is actually in, you know, states like Oklahoma is a big one, but honestly, I mean, Montana is huge. Mm. You would, honestly, the best way to look at it is if it's a cannabis state with a recreational or medical program, generally their hemp program is a little bit weak. So oh, really, yeah. So usually, usually the huge hemp states are the big agriculture states um, that don't necessarily have a cannabis program yet, but they're obviously getting there. So yeah. it, it's honestly, you know, Michigan is big. North Carolina is big. Um, I mean, Oklahoma, I mean, Denver, that whole Colorado region is, is big. I mean, they've been in the hemp world since before the farm bill passed, which is huge. Um, I mean, yeah, but Cali, Cali has a pretty decent hemp scene, but their cannabis scene is, it trumps that, you know, it's not even close. This is really interesting because when you're talking about this and the distribution and, you know, here I'm thinking the whole time, like, well, the business model is just, you know, introducing the extractor to the ethanol and and providing it. But the model itself almost seems like if you really studied like Amazon and the way they do their uh, prime delivery and they've got distribution centers throughout the United States, the reason Amazon is so good is because you can get anything in a day or two. Yeah. Like, and if you had everything at the Amazon headquarters, um, just HQ, it's not like you're going to be able to get batteries in in a day. You know, like it's going to take a while to get it there. So I love this concept. It seems so big picture to think of the idea of just if we put ethanol where it's going to be needed, then at least we're going to have this supply chain available. Maybe they run out with their other supplier. Maybe it's opportunity. So I'm curious to know, A, uh, is this something that like you, you study like Bezos and Amazon and and think about this as you're going into it and, um, and be like, are, are, is this kind of like the, the model going forward? Is it just distribution everywhere to make it easy? Yeah. So, I mean, it's a handful of all of this, you know, you look at all these success cases and, and try to, you know, look through all of it and apply what's necessary to your, your model. Um, I think, you know, one of the big things and one of the big decisions we had to make early on was what model do we actually take as a company? Is it Mm. by going to third party distributors or is it by establishing distribution centers on our own? And, and that was a, a, and still is a hard conversation. We, We still don't have the answer yet because we're so flexible and we're so agile that we can work with different business models. So for example, you could have an established solvent man or sorry, a, a established solvent distributor. Um, you know, let's just say out in California, mm-hmm. I could, I could sell them a truckload. I could send the truck. It's their product. They'll do what they will with it. Um, they're getting all the margin and, or I can go the other way, which number the first way is you'll be a volume leader, right? You'll get the product out to the market fast, but you don't have control over anything. So, the other model is, do you just do it yourself, get your own warehouses, get your own local delivery fleet, do it that way, which is way more expensive, 
But in the long term, if you're looking at a five, seven, 10 year roadmap, that's got the longevity in it, right? So we're kind of working on this hybrid model where we're open to exploring distribution opportunities. We're open to exploring our own warehousing opportunities. You know, we're, we're, we're experimenting right now, right? So we're, I love to stumble before we walk and run because that's how you learn. We have to make sure that we're picking the right model because as soon as we have that model established, I mean, overnight, we can scale that up. So yeah. I think, I think you know, probably in the next two or three months, we'll have a really good indication about our exact focus on the warehousing and scaling up the warehousing because right now we're dipping our toes in a couple different models to just see what works. Now, are you doing that strategically? Because this is something where I feel like um, the companies that, that, that pivot really well are very strategic in how they test the waters. Um, because if you want to know for sure that the model that you're choosing is going to be the best model, um, I would imagine you have to lay out a very, very like succinct set of procedures to roll out these tests. Yep. Yeah. No, they're very, they're very well controlled tests and we know exactly the outcomes that we're looking for. So a lot of it comes down to control and quality control and the touch points that that distributor may have with their customers who indirectly are still our customers. So there's this representation thing where do they have the ability as a distributor to bring that education to the table? Are they willing to have the level of support that, that we want to have? You know, so those are some of the big things early on that we identify before we get into a relationship are do, do your values align with ours? Because you could sell a whole lot of ethanol, but if your values don't align with our brand, then we don't want that label on coming out of that warehouse, right? So, you know, you've got the, the quality control and then you've also got communication. You know, if you're going to a third party, is there communication A1 with, with us as a service provider? Well, if they're not extremely quick, that's something that could unravel, you know, very fast. And then that leads to opportunity loss. That leads to customers being upset. Our brand image is getting, you know, damaged. So we're testing these waters. And then at the same time, we're, we're looking at the model of doing it all ourselves. And how do you look at the, the cost benefit analysis of that? Well, there's a handful of costs that go into doing it yourself. The longevity's there, the margins there, the controls there, the brand um, messaging stays consistent but the scale is much slower. And, you know, so we're just, we're figuring out where we want to go. But right now, honestly, all three models are something that we're working with just to see what we're comfortable with scaling up. Does it make sense for you? And this is kind of like one of those big picture CEO questions. Does it make sense to, to, to dabble in all three or does it make more sense to go all in on one? I think we're going to go all in on one. But we need to dabble first to figure out what what model we want, because to dabble, it's pretty much risk free. I mean, it's literally almost no risk for us to, to explore these different models outside of buying or leasing our own space like that has risk because now you're talking about a long duration contract. So that one, we're honestly using the data from the first two business models to justify backing into the third. And I'm hoping that all the data points us into that. So we'll, we'll see, you know, I, I would love to control it all and have our own warehousing, have our own fleets. Um, but we just don't know yet if that's the right move and that's very capital intensive. So the other thing that as a founder, you need to always do is protect your equity at all costs. You know, if we want to take that leap, we have to raise capital is now the right time yeah. to do that. Is our valuation the right place to make that justification to bring on, you know, $12 million. No, mm. right now, probably not. So it's that, it's that balancing act. And, you know, if we were going to go do a raise to scale that business model up, well, you better have a handful of data to back up that decision before you go take some other people's money. Yeah. Th that's an interesting idea too, because, uh, you know, I, I didn't even really think about the fact that the capital expenditure would require some some venture capital to at least get started. So, what what do you think about when you're considering um, 
investments in your company and how much you're going to need from venture capitalists? So that, that equation is all being put together right now. We won't know a lot of those until we have our per location scale budget. So you look at, okay, here's, here's the warehouse you want to expand into. Here's the opportunity based on the cannabis and hemp market. Here's the population density, the cost per square foot, the cost to ship a truck down there, a full, you know, full of material. And then from there, you have to look at the turnover. So how fast are we moving through the product? And also how much more or how much less am I spending to acquire a new customer in that zone? And our assumptions are that by having a physical location in that region, our cost per acquisition should be lower and our cost for retention should be almost zero. So that's the mentality. And I just need to prove that before we go scale. And then once I prove that, all the numbers are built because we have a live case study. Yeah, no, that, that makes a lot of sense. What are the, what do you think the three biggest attributes are of a founder CEO towards the sec- success of a company? I think number one is consistency. Just having relentless consistency and not being pushed down or letting things, you know, knock you off your path is probably the biggest thing. You just need to be relentless. Um, agility, again, I think is, you know, the ability to make decisions quickly and not get caught up in in something in, in the ability to identify which horse is running the fastest and by putting, you know, sometimes you have to give up on something you thought was a good idea, but that's not a loss that taught you a whole lot of stuff. So just when that whole thing coming into agility, it's, you know, you have to identify when to be able to cut the strings. You have to identify when you, you can pour gasoline on the fire and you have to be able to keep your eyes open and not have blinders on. So you're looking at other opportunities and you're not missing stuff that could, you know, 10 X your business. So I think all of that uh, ties into it. And then the last one is passion. Like you just have to care and love about what you're doing. Yeah. What, um, what's something that you learned to be true in business that you assumed to be false before you started? Hmm. Okay. I, I assumed that, and this is, I think this might even just be a personality trait for me, but just, I assume people are always out for the best intention Mm. and you find out really quickly in the business world that that's not the case, that there's a lot of hidden motives. And that's why when I look at new relationships and I look at especially new partnerships, I don't really look at what the outcome of that partnership or relationship would be. I I want to align values first because if the values don't align, then there's really not much to proceed with. So it's tough because I didn't, I, I just honestly thought everybody had the best intention for everybody. Like we're all trying to win. And that's, that's not the case. Yeah. How do you uncover someone's values? Like when you, when you are out saying, okay, is this person out for, out for profit? Are they trying to swindle me? Are they trying to, whatever their intentions are, how do you look at them and understand what their true intentions are? Yeah. Honestly, it's, it's tough because you have to just have a little bit of gut feeling, but honestly, my biggest trick is to let them talk. Like, you know, I'll ask some key questions, but the whole point of this is I want you to talk to me because I can, I'll know where you're steering the conversation. Are you steering it in a a position of profit or are you steering it in a position of caring? And that's, I mean, you can identify that super quick. So just, you know, putting the ball in their court, you know, giving them the opportunity to show that they're a person that we want to do business with, because here's the thing. We don't need to do business with anybody. And the last thing that we want is to have bad apples, you know, in our, in, in, in any association with us. So you don't want to rush, you don't rush it. You let, you let their colors speak for themselves. And you, and you do that by not, um, oversharing and letting, letting them hold the mic. How do you build a culture surrounding the vision that you have? for your company and how do you continue to keep that vision at the forefront of everything you do? Yeah. So I, I think the culture is, is huge, absolutely huge. And as, as the CEO, 
one of the things that uh, helps develop that culture and keep that culture consistent is by having the mentality that my sole job and focus is actually internal development mm. and not necessarily external development. My, my responsibility as the CEO is to empower everybody around me, but not to be the person that goes out and, you know, necessarily creates the high level relationships or, or develops the business externally. You have to be focused on empowering the people who are around you. And by doing that, that is the culture in itself because there are, you're already in, you're already in the team because you share value. You're already in the team because you have passion, but how do you maintain that culture? Well, it's empowerment. It's by letting them, you know, all the employees or, or founders or co-founders, the people who you're surrounded with, let them shine, you know, let them come up with the ideas, let them have, um, not even let them enable them to have ideas, enable them to, share and have cross team communication and not this fragmented, you know, communication bubble where it's like the C-suite has to report to me and they don't have this collaboration with amongst them. It's, you know, what I like to look at is it's all the web and to build a culture that's going to be sustainable. I'm a servant of that web. And if I can just enable everybody to be successful and what they're skilled at, you know, that's my biggest focus. Yeah, Brandon, how hard is this though? Because I, I know that when I um, started moving up as a sales director in, in a company that I worked for, one of the hardest things to do was to empower others and to, because I, I felt not like I was empowering others. And this was something that I just maybe wasn't good at, or, or it was just a flaw in the way that I thought about it. Instead of empowering others, I maybe looked at the situation that I was in when I had to hire people underneath me in terms of, well, I'm, I'm taking a step back. I'm losing the relationship, the touch point. Um, I don't, I can't control everything going on. And I think it was giving up that control. Um, that's the most scary for, for yeah. someone like yourself as a CEO who, who really has the responsibility of the success of the company, right? So, I mean, how scary is it to, to bring other people on and empower them? And, and how do you kind of manage that balance? Yeah, I, I think we got lucky because our founding team is, is just such on the same page with a handful mm -hmm. of different skills. So that allows me to have the focus that I want, right? So, you know, when you're looking at bringing new people on, it's, they're plugging into an ecosystem that's, that's already built. Mm. So from there, it's, is it a good culture fit? Is it a good value fit? And then the empowerment and the, and the enabling really comes around to how does that person like to communicate? How do they like to receive positive feedback? How do they like to receive negative feedback? You know, what small little things can you do to make them feel like they're part of the team? I mean, just even something as simple as having, uh, um, you know, a $200 package that I send to a new employee that has, you know, embroidered apparel and, you know, a swag package and just like, Hey, here, you're part of the team, right? Just small little things like that add up. Um, and just mm. you know, providing the, the platform. So people feel like they be heard and they can give feedback. Um, but it's not just feedback that siphoned directly to me. It's feedback that the whole team can benefit from. You know, so it's, it's, it's definitely challenging, uh, but I was lucky to just have a very talented team. And honestly, we are just now bringing on our first people. So it, it's, I'll have to answer that question in a couple of weeks once we actually have some, some full-time staff coming under, under the wing. But right now, the whole thing, the whole ship is, is steered by the ownership team. I love it. I love it. Brennan, you have... Uh, unbelievable sense of of just the understanding of business, the ability to pivot. Um, you have a really good understanding of of your business, and I think that the direction that you're going is is really positive. I, I'm really excited to be able to share this with my listeners. I think there's a lot of nuggets that people are going to get out of this. A from just the importance of understanding where the products and services you buy, where they're coming from, what's yeah. in it, not just, not just the ingredients. How are those ingredients being provided, being extracted? Um, there's so much more than, than meets the eye when it comes to things that especially 
you consume. So yeah. A, but also I think what you've shared today just in your business sense and understanding how to pivot, leverage opportunity in a pandemic. I, I think it's really important for people who who are entrepreneurial, who have that spirit, who are looking to start something. And uh, and I think that that they'll really see a lot and, and share some of the similar um, situations that you went through. So yeah, I love it. Absolutely. And thank you so much. Um, if people are looking for solvents, if someone's listening to this and say, I, you know what, I actually do need ethanol, um, where can you direct them to? Yeah, so you can find us at simplesolvents.com. We are on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn, uh, at Simple Solvents. We're pretty easy to find. If you type us in on Google, you'll find us. Um, if there's something that's that you need that's not on that website, give us a shout. We can help you find pretty much any chemical you need. Awesome. Well, I'd like to end the podcast with three questions. So here's the final three questions for cool. you. Um, first question, what's the most impactful book you've ever read? Uh, I have it right here, actually. Hold on. The Culture Code. What was so impactful about that book? I mean, we, we kind of we t- touched on some of the stuff, but this book made me have the realization that myself as a CEO and a leader of the company is to serve, serve everybody around me and not be the person that's developing the, the external business that, that empowering the talent around you is, is the most important thing. Um, and I think like, you know, this is recent. I, I, I just, I just hammered through this book in the last couple of months, but I'm telling you, it's, it's already made a, it was a that good. Difference. Yeah. It's, it's phenomenal. That's a, uh, the culture cold code by Daniel Coyle. Okay. Okay. If you could have a drink with anyone past or present, who would it be? What would you drink and why? Um, I would, I don't know. That's tough, but probably Elon Musk, honestly, mm. <laughs> but, but, but that's also cause I'm a little bit biased. I love cryptocurrency and I love, you know, just kind of everything that he's about, about joking wise. Like I love Shiba's. I love those dogs. I love you know, like, he's obviously a super talented business guy. Um, and what would I drink? I would drink bourbon. Cause that's usually what I drink. <laughs> awesome. Awesome. The last question. So the every breath counts podcast, it's, it's all about orchestrating your life to, to live a fulfilled life, the way you want to live it and to have gratitude and happiness and relationships and, and just building your career, your mind, your body so that you could be the most successful and have the best life you could possibly um, have. So how do you make every breath count in your life? That's a tough question. And honestly, I'm, I'm the last probably year and a half. I've been so head under that I have definitely neglected some of that. But now that we're kind of through the storm and you know, those, those 16, 18 hour days are, are behind us. Um, you know, it's really just taking advantage of, of not only your free time, that you have for yourself to develop yourself, but even just to unplug, even if you're not doing any kind of development, that's huge. Um, for me, you know, it's a little bit of video games. It's a little bit of, uh, fishing, which now that we, now we can, uh, start to get back out there. We had red tide here in Florida, uh, for the last like nine months. So we couldn't fish. Oh, yeah. Um, but then I think that out, out of everything, the most important thing is, is those close family and friend relationships and just, making sure you're paying attention to those. You know, it's very easy to go by and, you know, kind of t- take for granted some of those relationships. And, you know, especially when you're head down building a business, it's like sometimes you do get those blinders on and that's the only thing you're thinking about. But you need to come up for air every once in a while and, you know, appreciate the people around you that, that you know, enabled you to be where you're at. Awesome. Brandon, thank you so much. This has been a lot of fun. I am confident that you your team, your company are going to continue to grow, continue to flourish. Guys, if you do need solvents, reach out to Simple Solvents. If you're interested in anything else, find them on Instagram, find them on, uh, find them on the website. All those links will be in the show notes. But take his advice. Understand where what you're putting in your body is coming from. Have a great week and make every breath.
Hey, y'all. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. I can't articulate how grateful I am for you. If this episode was inspiring, motivating, or educational, it would mean the world to me if you hit the follow or subscribe button wherever you listen and left a positive five-star review. And if you want to learn about new episodes as they come out, check out my Instagram at Every Breath Counts Podcast and sign up for my newsletter at everybreathcountspodcast.com. Have a great day and make every breath count.